GOC, you can have your seats. Excited to be back with you. Uh, missed you guys. I'm, I'm glad we can uh, be back here in Broad together. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is going to be our text tonight. Once upon a time, during the early years of World War II in the English countryside, a little girl named Lucy stumbled upon a wardrobe and opened a portal to Narnia. Once upon a time, on his 11th birthday, a young orphan boy named Harry Potter is visited by a giant named Hagrid, and Hagrid delivers the news that Harry is a wizard. Once upon a time, a shy and nerdy teenager in New York is bitten by a radioactive spider, and Peter Parker becomes Spider-Man. In most of the stories that we know and love, there's that kind of moment, isn't there? Uh, There's this moment that kind of sets the whole plot in motion. It's kind of like the first domino to fall that sets off this chain reaction of drama and of action and eventually climax and conclusion for Lucy It was the wardrobe that led to Narnia. For Harry, it was Hagrid. And for Peter Parker, it was this radioactive spider. Oh, there's a term for this moment in a story that I googled up this week. Uh, English majors, don't be mad if I'm I'm wrong here. Uh, But it's called the inciting event. The inciting event. It's kind of like a catalyst. It's the, the moment in a story where you start to realize what's happening. You start to realize where the plot might be headed and and what this whole story is even about. And this inciting event is so crucial for really understanding the story because it actually justifies why the story exists in the first place. The story exists because this inciting event occurred and this event draws you into the, the drama and the meaningfulness of whatever story is being told. Let me give you an example. I was up in Sacramento uh, this past winter break, and I saw my brother, and I learned that my brother watched the last Harry Potter movie first, and he had never read the books. And if you're a Harry Potter fan, you probably just got really, really sad for him, right? Because he lost so much of the the meaning and and the value of that story. He wasn't invested in the characters at all. He missed out on all the twists and turns. You see, uh, all the meaning of a story only makes sense when we understand where it's all coming from. Uh, Without this inciting event, you're left confused, you're left uh, disinterested in the story, and and you're indifferent to what happens to the characters in the story. Well, there's something like that when it comes to evangelism. There's something like evangelism an inciting event of evangelism. And if you're missing that event, there's a good chance you don't really understand evangelism. And there's a good chance that you may be more indifferent to evangelism than you should be. There's a good chance you're missing some of the meaning and the value and the importance of evangelism if you have not carefully thought about the inciting event that is recorded in the passage we're going to look at today in Matthew 9. And and even more practically, 
uh, this passage is not just going to help us understand evangelism in our minds. It's going to help us actually do it. I know I need that help. I need to grow in my courage and my boldness and, and my urgency and my, my love for the lost. And if that's a need that you've ever felt, if you've ever felt timid or, or nervous or, or scared or anxious or indifferent about evangelism, I believe that God recorded this inciting event for evangelism in the Bible to encourage you tonight. As Matt and Andre and I talked about this little mini-series on evangelism these past few weeks, we knew that uh, we just couldn't exhaust the subject. There really is so much we could talk about, but I do think one of the best ways that we can start out in our discussion on evangelism is to get on the same page about how this whole evangelism thing got started. And I believe that if we see this moment in scripture, it has the power to transform and encourage and embolden all of our evangelism. Uh, that's our prayer for you in these next few weeks and really for your whole Christian life, that as you see more of what God has to say about preaching the gospel, you would start to see the 44,000 souls on this campus as an unmatched opportunity to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Let's begin by looking at Matthew chapter 9 verse 35 through 38. Matthew 9 35 through 38 is our main text and here we see something like an inciting event for evangelism. Verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We're going to break this passage down uh, into just two parts tonight. And each part is going to show an aspect of this inciting event for evangelism. And together, these two parts will answer the question, where did evangelism come from? Where did evangelism come from? And I believe if we answer that question, we will grow in our understanding of and our zeal for evangelism. So where did evangelism come from? In verses 35 through 36, the first answer to that question is Jesus' great compassion. Jesus' great compassion. Let's just start with verse 35 together. I'll read it again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Uh, this verse is a really, really good summary statement of the last few chapters in Matthew. Uh, after Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached, uh, verse 35 is what has been happening up until this point in Matthew. Um, commentators most often refer to this as Jesus' public ministry. And that's a really good title because he was ministering publicly. 
Uh, He was going throughout all the cities and all the villages, as verse 35 says. He was teaching and preaching. He was performing miraculous healings. He healed paralytics. He healed blind men. He even raised a girl from the dead just a few verses back in Matthew 9, verse 18. And so Jesus' ministry was booming. Uh, He had started to gather some followers, some disciples. He was starting to become the talk of the town. Some people loved him. Some people hated him. And that's what's happening in this summary verse of verse 35. And it's this verse why I call our passage an inciting event. Uh, Because as Matthew composes his gospel story, he is signaling to us in this verse that something is about to change. That's why he puts this summary of Jesus's ministry here. Matthew's saying, here is everything that's been happening in one concise sentence. Now keep on reading and compare and contrast what's about to happen. You see, Jesus shifts from his public ministry to a more private ministry with his disciples. Instead of Jesus going through every city and every village teaching and preaching and healing, he is about to instruct his 12 disciples to be the ones to teach and to preach and to heal. You see, Jesus is about to multiply evangelistic efforts by 12. And this is the catalyst. This is the inciting event that thrusts all followers of Jesus into this legacy of evangelism, a legacy that you and I share today. What causes this shift from Jesus doing it to enlisting his followers for evangelism? Verse 36. Read it with me. Matthew says, when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Why did all of this evangelism stuff get started? Well, there's more than one right answer to that question. But here in our text, Matthew highlights one thing, and he makes it crystal clear. Where did all of this evangelism stuff come from? It came from the compassion of Jesus. The word translated compassion here has no like, exact equal in English. Uh, compassion is a good word, but I think when we hear the word compassion, we think like just feeling bad for somebody. Uh, maybe we think like a, like a hallmark sympathy card or something. But this word is a lot more than that. I think a good way to get the, the sense of this word is to think of it as a gut-wrenching sympathy. A gut-wrenching sympathy. Jesus did not just feel bad for these people. He experienced a a visceral kind of sympathy. And I think the gospel writers help us to understand the the intensity and the severity of this emotion. Because in all the gospels, this word is only used of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's used in a parable about one of the characters, but that character is representing God. For example, the father in the uh, prodigal son parable says that the father had compassion for his lost son. And so there's a unique and and uniquely intense kind of compassion that Jesus feels that the gospels highlight for us. 
And why is that? Uh, what, what made Jesus feel so intensely, so uniquely intensely? Uh, what made him so gut-wrenchingly compassionate for the crowds? It's because he saw something that we often miss. Jesus saw not only the physical condition of the lepers and the paralytics and the blind men, he saw the spiritual condition of every single soul he interacted with. Verse 36 says that Jesus saw the crowds as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, and that is not just some random metaphor. This is Matthew drawing on an Old Testament idea, Old Testament language to tell us that Jesus saw the spiritual destitution of all of humanity. The idea of of a harassed and vulnerable sheep is all over the Old Testament. But listen to Ezekiel 34 for just a taste of it. This is verse 2. This is God speaking, rebuking false shepherds. He says, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should you not feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. And then in verse 5, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they, the sheep, became food for all the wild beasts. One of the great threads in the, the narrative of all of Scripture is this need for a good and a perfect shepherd to care and love and protect the sheep. And so when, when Matthew says that Jesus saw the crowds in this way, He's saying Jesus understands not just the physical suffering in this fallen world. He's saying Jesus understands the the cosmic and the universal problem that has plagued humanity since Genesis 3. Jesus sees that sin has enslaved humanity and is sending them to hell. You, You see, Jesus certainly saw the physical problems in this world, but he also saw just how bad the spiritual condition of every human being was, and he saw it in a way that you and I never could. Because he saw the ugliness of sin, having never sinned himself. With pure and holy eyes, Jesus saw not just extraordinary suffering in this world, but he saw evil running rampant in the hearts of every human, and he knew exactly what that would lead them to. Not just their physical death, but their spiritual and eternal death. J.C. Ryle says that in this verse, Jesus saw the crowds as people who were dying, but unfit to die. And seeing this, it moved Jesus to feel what verse 36 calls compassion. Compassion. And it's this heart of Christ, this intense, gut-wrenching compassion that needs to fuel our evangelism today. GOC, this is where we can get evangelism so wrong. 
because we can turn evangelism into some debate or, or some argument that we are supposed to win. Social media is full of these stupid mic drop moments of Christians winning debates, winning arguments, and humiliating their opponents, and blah, blah, blah. Who cares if you do not love them? You're just a a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I don't think Jesus would care one bit if you won some argument against, against an atheist or a Mormon or a Catholic if your heart is not aching in love and compassion for them. And so as we think about our evangelism, one thing that will help us to evangelize in the way that Jesus intended is to see the world as Jesus did. If we see the world through spiritual realities and not just physical ones, how much closer will our hearts be to the kind of compassion that Jesus felt? As you rub shoulders with your classmates, as you stand in in line in the dining halls, as you live in your apartments and in your dorm rooms with that unbeliever, how aware are you of the spiritual condition of their soul? How cognizant are you of their eternal destination? Do Do you see them as merely classmates and friends, or do you see them as Jesus does? One pastor says it this way, life is short, Death is certain, and eternity is forever. C.S. Lewis says that you have never met a mere mortal. Everyone is headed for eternity. If you begin to see the world through this kind of spiritual lens, I believe your heart will start to ache and long with compassion for everyone to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that's your heart, I don't think I would even need to tell you to go evangelize, to go sign up for fishing. I think that would just be your natural response, not just to go win debates and arguments, but to go and love people, to go and tell them the best news that they could ever hear. I was in, I was in class at seminary a few months ago. It was a class called Apologetics and Evangelism, and early on in this class, uh, the classroom was getting to know each other, and uh, one student, I kid you not, told the professor, I'm taking this class because I just like to debate and argue about the truth of the Bible. <laughs> and I loved our professor's response. He said, without skipping a beat, yeah, I guess we're all being sanctified. Brutal. Brutal. But so good. Because arguing and debating is not what evangelism is about. It's terribly immature to think that way. In fact, it's often prideful and and contrary to the very heart of evangelism. Evangelism is not about you being right. Evangelism is a business of compassion. It's about expressing the love of God to those who are actively in rebellion to him. And what an incredible privilege that is for us. In evangelism, you get to be the vehicle of God's compassion. Uh, Let that sink in. You get to 
align yourself with the will of God and you get to be the expression of the compassion of Christ to the lost. What a privilege that is. And if you're not a Christian here today, I want you to know that this intense, gut-wrenching compassion is what Jesus Christ feels for you right now. Every moment you do not forsake your sin and believe in his saving work, Jesus sees the eternal condition of your soul. Jesus knows that you live in sin. He knows that you are rebelling against the one who created you. He knows that that will lead to eternal death. Uh, He knows that every day of your life, you've been trying to take control of your life. Uh, You've been trying to to numb the pain of living in this fallen world with, with fleeting pleasures. And Jesus sees that, and he knows that you seek for your own glory and not for the glory of God. And you need to know that as Jesus sees all of that in your heart, all of that rejection and rebellion and emptiness and sin, he feels compassion for you. So much so that he lived a perfect life in your place just so that he could give up that life by dying on the cross that you deserved for your sin. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to prove that that sacrifice actually worked. He proved that if you turn from your sin and you believe in him, you will be forgiven and you too will be raised from the dead. And, and you will have eternal life in him. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, if you reject Jesus, you need to know that you are deserving of wrath. But you also need to know that this very moment, Jesus looks on you with intense, gut-wrenching compassion. And he extends the opportunity to you to be saved and reconciled to him. That is the heart of Christianity. And when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to preaching that message, how could we not do it with eagerness and with zeal and most of all with love? Here in Matthew 9, we see that Jesus sets evangelism in motion for his followers. And we see that from the very beginning, the heart of evangelism has always been the heart of God. Deep, loving compassion for sinners. Jesus' great compassion is our first part of this catalyst, this inciting event for evangelism, and it ought to shape how we evangelize today. Well, the second part of this inciting event is found in verses 37 through 38. We saw Jesus' great compassion, and now we're going to see Jesus' great commission. Jesus' great commission. Let's read together Matthew 9, verses 37 through 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest 
to send out laborers into his harvest. In these verses, we see a great commission. Typically, when we hear the phrase great commission, uh, we probably most often and, and rightly think of the end of Matthew, right? The great commission, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of, of all nations. That's what we often call the great commission, and it's often viewed as the text for evangelism, and that's great. But here in Matthew 9, we see another great commission. In fact, we see an earlier great commission. And it's not the commission to go. It's not the marching orders to to leave your house and evangelize. This commission is to stay home. Lock your doors and pray. Our first great commission when it comes to evangelism is to pray. Look at verse 37. After Jesus looked on the crowds and felt compassion, Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus uses this farming metaphor to illustrate what we're up against as evangelists. And he doesn't say it's that we don't have enough eloquence. He doesn't say it's that we don't have enough knowledge or evangelism training. He says the problem is that there are two many crops to gather in. It's like supply and demand. Shout out to you econ majors. I know econ. Boom. Supply and demand. X. Jesus is saying there's too much demand for evangelism and not enough supply, not enough laborers. And as Jesus sat there with his 12 disciples looking out onto all these cities and towns and villages, I bet that they felt just like we do when we look out into Westwood. Because the problem they faced is the problem we face. 44,000 souls. That's how many people attend your school. I remember a conversation I had with uh, Tim Peters earlier this fall. If you don't know who Tim is, you need to. Tim's the best. Uh, He's been one of the greatest examples of of faithfulness, of godliness, and of humility in my life. And uh, this story is an example of that. Because earlier this fall, uh, Tim Peters drove some of you back to the hill after fall retreat. And because it was after fall retreat, he drove you to the hill during move-in weekend. And whenever any of us get stuck in move-in weekend kind of traffic, Oh, we complain. We're like, what's happening? This is awful. This is terrible. And Tim was telling me about his experience, and he was like, oh, man, it was crazy on the hill. And I was like, I know. It's awful. It's terrible. I'm just complaining and going on and on, babbling about how bad it is. And then Tim just goes, well, yeah, but what an amazing opportunity our students have. You see, Tim saw this campus through the lens of the gospel. And he saw that the harvest was plentiful. I did some math this week. It was the hardest part of my week. I did some math. I estimated that uh, GOC, we are maybe 150 strong. 
which means if we want to reach every soul on this campus, every single one of us, before spring quarter ends, needs to evangelize 293 people in two quarters. That is a sobering reality because we just can't do that. There's too much demand, not enough supply. Too much harvest, not enough laborers. So what's Jesus' solution? Look at verse 38. Verse 38 opens with the word therefore, and it tells us that verse 37 is the reason he's about to say what he says in verse 38. So verse 38 says, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, the harvest is plentiful, and we urgently need to evangelize. We desperately need to preach the gospel, and Jesus knows this, and with compassion in his heart, he says, but wait. Don't go just yet. First, pray. And pray earnestly. And what does he say to pray for? Well, does he say that you should pray for salvation of the lost? No, although that is a good thing you should pray for. Does he say you should pray for open doors for the gospel? Nope, although Paul does say that in Colossians. He says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. You should pray for open doors. You should pray for lost souls, but you should also pray for more evangelists. And I got to tell you, as I tried to put this in, into practice this week, I saw that this was definitely an aspect of prayer and evangelism that I had neglected. I'd prayed for salvation, prayed for opportunities, but I noticed how infrequently I found myself praying to God to send evangelists to lost souls. The other thing I noticed was how much it ended up burdening my heart to be the one to go. When you pray for someone's salvation, it can be easy to say, like, uh, I, I prayed that prayer, I asked God to save him, and, and I did my part. You know, I, I'm done. But when we pray for God to send someone to that lost soul, someone to preach the gospel to that person, all of a sudden you start thinking, well, I, I guess I could be that someone, right? You see, when we beg God, to send someone to witness to a lost soul, we necessarily place ourselves at God's disposal to become that someone. And that's exactly how this passage actually unfolds. Jesus commands his disciples to pray for evangelists. And then I love this. Look at chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, or Matthew says, And he, Jesus, called to him his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then look down to verse 7. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I love this scene. I imagine that Jesus commands his disciples to pray for evangelists. And so the disciples sort of circle up in a group of 12. And they start praying. And they're praying and they're praying. 
and they're asking God to send evangelists, and then they finish praying, and they look up at each other. Maybe a little, little quiet. And then something breaks the silence. And it's Jesus' voice, and Jesus calls them, and he says, hey, guess what? Prayer answered. You, go and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And these 12 who were just ordinary men, fishermen, tax collectors, nobodies in society, they became some of the first people to preach the gospel. You see, you cannot divorce this great commission to pray and this great commission to go. They go hand in hand, and we'll talk more about the going side of things next week with Andre, but I fear that we might forget about this first great commission to pray. And just like we saw in the compassion of Jesus, this commission really does set the tone for evangelism. Because prayer for evangelism reminds us that evangelism is ultimately not in our hands. It reminds us that we are not the Lord of the harvest. It reminds us that the harvest is God's, and so if there is to be any hope, any success in our evangelism, we must rely fully on him, not ourselves. Look at the details in verse 38 that kind of highlight this. Jesus doesn't just say, pray that there would be more evangelists. He specifically says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. And then look at the very end of verse 38. Does Jesus say to send out laborers into the harvest? No. Jesus says pray to send out laborers into his harvest. There is an emphasis here in this prayer that God is Lord over all of it. This is the kind of prayer that reminds us that evangelism and all of its outcomes belong to God alone. It reminds us that every soul belongs to God alone. All of our efforts are utterly futile unless it is God who acts, because God is the only one who can give life. And so prayer becomes one of the most powerful things you can do when it comes to evangelism because it fully depends on the grace and the power of God and not you. It reminds us that evangelism doesn't depend on whether or not you're eloquent or whether or not you are confident or quick on your feet or an extrovert. It's not about that. It's about who the Lord of the harvest is. It's about who's in control. You see, just like Jesus' compassion setting the tone for evangelism, here Jesus' commission to pray sets this tone of full dependence and full submission to God in our evangelism. So should you go and preach the gospel? Yes. Must you go and preach the gospel? Absolutely. Preach, preach, preach to lost souls. But first, before you preach... Pray, because the souls you preach to belong to the one you pray to. That reality, I think, deserves a little bit of a detour here. 
Because I think there are often two kinds of mistakes we make when we start to think about God's sovereignty and our evangelism. Some of you might be thinking, God's sovereignty kind of makes evangelism useless, right? Like, what's the point of evangelizing if God is in control of salvation anyway? He's going to do it, right? Others of you might see God's sovereignty as this, like, intangible theological idea, uh, something that's too nebulous or too heady, and it doesn't actually, like, affect how you live day to day. Either way, I want to help you rightly think about and rightly apply God's sovereignty to your evangelism. The, The first and main application is to pray, as we just saw, but there is another great commission, which is to go. And I want to show you that God's sovereignty also affects the actual going out and evangelizing. So right now, I'm just going to give you three results of God's sovereignty for evangelism. Three results of God's sovereignty for evangelism. You can call them implications if you like, but I hope that they'll help you to read passages like Matthew 9, to think about God's sovereignty over everything, and to really truly rejoice that God is Lord of the harvest. Okay, three results, implications. Number one, because God is sovereign over evangelism, you should be bold. Because God is sovereign over evangelism, you should be bold. You are speaking on behalf of the sovereign king of kings. Uh, You are um, a messenger, a herald for the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ has earned your right to be heard by living and dying and rising again. So preach the gospel boldly. You understand that you don't need to make friends first before you preach the gospel. Although you you should make friends, you should be compassionate. Don't, Don't mishear me here. Don't be a jerk for no reason. But as a gospel preacher, as a messenger of Jesus Christ, you intrinsically have the right to be heard by all of God's creatures, not because of anything in you, but because of who you speak for. This has really helped me in in my evangelism because evangelism is scary. (laughs) I I was trying to evangelize my barber one time, and which, by the way, is a really good uh, strategy because they kind of have to listen to you. Like, they have no way out, right? So I was trying to evangelize my barber, and I was getting ready to preach the gospel, and then all of a sudden, for some reason, that barbershop got real quiet. Everybody's like clippers turned off. All the other conversations stopped. And it got super quiet. And in that moment, I saw timidity in my heart. I saw a cowardice in my heart. But if I had remembered that Jesus was Lord over every soul in that room, I wouldn't have skipped a beat. Because God is sovereign, you can be bold. Christ has earned your right to be heard. Number two, because God is sovereign over evangelism, you should be urgent. You should be urgent. A common objection to God's sovereignty over evangelism and the doctrine of election, God choosing people to be saved, is that if God's going to save them no matter what, well then, why 
should we bother to evangelize? Right? If there's guaranteed salvation, guaranteed success, why should we be urgent? Why should we go through all the trouble? They're going to get saved anyways, right? Well, let me give you an illustration. Think about this campus. Think about every single chair on campus. Every one of these lecture hall chairs. Every chair outside of a cafe. Every chair in Ackerman. That's a lot of chairs. What if I guaranteed, and you trusted me, that under one of those chairs, there is a check for $10 million. Guaranteed. And finders keepers. Some of you would get up right now, not bother to hear the end of the sermon, and just go. And honestly, I wouldn't really blame you. Well, what if I told you that maybe, perhaps, potentially, there's a check? under one of those chairs. Maybe, maybe not. Well, you'd think, okay, that's, that's weird. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of chairs to check, for sure. And I'm not even sure if it's out there. So I'm just going to stay here and listen <laughs> to the end of the service. You see what I mean? God's sovereignty over evangelism guarantees that some will be saved, and it ought to make you as urgent as you were thinking when I guaranteed that check was under one of those chairs, you would have gone and turned over every chair. You would have been out there till 5 a.m. looking for that check. GOC, there are lost sheep out there. There are God's children out there. You going to go and find them? We should be urgent because God is sovereign over evangelism. Third and finally, because God is sovereign over evangelism, you can have peace. You can have peace. A huge obstacle to evangelism is a fear of not knowing what to say or not knowing the answers to some hard questions. But God's sovereignty over evangelism squashes that fear because no one ever got saved because of your intellect. No one ever got saved because of your eloquence. Uh, you can have peace in evangelism in all your frailty and all your imperfection knowing that salvation belongs to the lord charles spurgeon calls the sovereignty of god the pillow upon which the christian may rest his head so pray and preach and evangelize and do it fervently and do it diligently and at the end of the day lay your head to rest on the pillow of god's sovereignty knowing that he is Lord of the harvest, knowing that he is in control, and knowing that he is in the business of saving. No word will return to God empty or void that he sent out. Isaiah 55, 11. Well, I hope those three thoughts are, are helpful to you, and, and I hope that as you remember that all of evangelism depends on God, you'll not only preach with boldness and urgency and peace, but also that with compassion welling up in your heart, you'll pray just as fervently to God to send more and more laborers into his harvest. You know, besides Jesus Christ, I think one of the greatest examples of 
this compassionate and prayerful evangelism is found in a man named Stephen. You might have heard of him. You can read all about him in Acts chapters 6 and 7. In fact, turn to the end of Acts chapter 7 with me. I want to show you one last thing that I believe will be a great encouragement to your soul. Long story short, this man Stephen is preaching the gospel and he gets arrested for his evangelism. Stephen is threatened with brutal, brutal execution. But he refused to recant his faith and he preached the gospel all the more. And the crowds were enraged that Stephen would not be silent. And they began to stone him to death. And as Stephen died, Acts chapter 7 verse 60 records his last words. Falling to his knees, he, Stephen, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's heart overflowed with compassion for his murderers because they rejected Jesus. And it drove him to spend his dying breath praying to God for them. Well, the very next verse, following this dying prayer of Stephen, chapter 8, verse 1, this is no coincidence. And Saul approved of his execution. Let me ask you a question. Do you know how the Apostle Paul got saved? You might say the road to Damascus. You might say the vision of the resurrected Christ, then you'd be right. But I think there's something that happened earlier. Kind of like a, an inciting event that set it all in motion. I think it was a dying man's prayer. You see, when Acts chapter 7 ends, Stephen saw face to face the one to whom he prayed with his dying breath. And I don't know if it was in that moment or sometime later in heaven, but Stephen would learn that his prayer was heard by God. And he would see how his dying prayer was not in vain because he would learn that God would actually answer his dying prayer to not hold this sin against the one who is murdering him. God would eventually forgive this murderous persecutor of the church named Saul who we all know as the Apostle Paul. God would save this man and transform him and commission him to be an evangelist to the world. And then thousands of years later, the same gospel that Stephen preached and died for and the same gospel that Paul preached and died for is going forth from college students in a city called Los Angeles on the other side of the globe in 2024. That's the power of prayer. And if that all happened in the last 2,000 years, can you imagine what's in store for the next however many years God gives us if we in this room 
pray to the Lord of the harvest. That's the power of prayer, and it is available to you this very moment. So as your heart grows for the lost, as your compassion grows for the lost, let your first instinct be prayer, because salvation belongs to the Lord. Father, it's such a privilege to have the perfect word of God before us and to see the heart of Jesus on display. To know that the, the sovereign and holy God has looked upon sinners with compassion is the greatest news we could ever hear. Father, I pray that we would not keep that news to ourselves, but we would fervently and diligently and eagerly proclaim that message to this campus of 44,000 souls. And Father, we, in obedience to the command of your Son, pray even now that you would, even tonight, send out more laborers into your harvest that is plentiful. And God, as we pray that prayer, I pray that you would work in our hearts to not just pray for them, but to be them. Be with us as we seek to be ambassadors for your son on this campus. It's in his holy and precious name that we pray.